Hello and welcome to Future Says. I'm your host, Sean Lang, and I spent my entire career implementing complex data analytics software for leading banks, automotive institutions, and engineering firms. Brought to you by Altair, a global leader in computational science and intelligence, Future Says explores how simulation, data, AI, and high-performance computing are transforming the world around us. In each episode, I talk with some of the industry's leading experts to hear how they're using data to spark the world's next generation innovations and shape the future of industries around the globe. With that, let's dive in. I'm delighted to welcome Girish Agarwal onto today's episode. Girish has a long and decorated history within digital transformation and data-driven services at multiple different companies. He's currently the head of AI lab at the Husqvarna Group, and he's also a PhD fellow at KTH Stockholm, where he's researching how AI can transform value perception with customers and disrupt existing business models. I'm sure we're only touching the surface on your bio, Girish. So it'd be interesting to learn a bit more about yourself and how you got to where you are today. Thank you, Sean, first of all, for having me here today. I'm really excited. And the topic, as you said, has been very close to my heart as well. That has been my research area all the time. But uh, going back to how did I land up here? <laughs> of course, it has been a journey. I started off as an engineer, as a developer myself, worked as a consultant, uh, worked in multiple companies at different IT uh, positions as IT manager, responsible for ERP, PLM systems, and so on and so on. And then I think uh, since 2013-14, I've been part of the digital journey uh, within a few companies, and to say the least, within uh, Husqvarna. And when we hop over to the digital journey, of course, there are some basic elements to that, like you know, connectivity and data and platforms and, and IoT and so on and so on. But then technology remains technology. And interesting is that how do we make value for our customers using technology? And one of the biggest factors in making value out of this technology is the business model that you put over and above this technology. And that is being implicated hugely, especially by these digital data-driven approaches. And that's why I think while being in the industry for almost two decades and working on the technology side for a very long time, I always felt a need that how do we combine now this whole technology in depth into the business value side through business model innovation. And that is where the research, I think, is really required. That on one hand, we have new AI research happening, new models, new algorithms, new techniques being researched on a daily basis. But then on the other side is this whole business model innovation thing, new ways of doing business, new ways of creating, delivering, and capturing value. And that is the, I would say, culmination of these two worlds is what uh, we are trying to do. And, and that's why my academic as well as the professional or practice career, uh, which combines together for companies like Husqvarna. And I think the adoption of AI is widespread today. Nobody doubts the potential that AI can bring. But I read recently research from Bain, which said that 87% of companies' executives are still unsatisfied with how they're actually rolling out the AI technology and how they're gaining value from that. So obviously at Husqvarna, you've, you've built an AI lab, a center of excellence. So can you tell us a bit more about 
the concrete value that is brought and whether you'd have any recommendations for people at an earlier stage of this journey? Yeah, sure. I can, of course, share my experience. Unfortunately, there are no magic bullets <laughs> that, that will just make it happen. Everyone has to go through this. As you yourself said, it's a transformation. It's a journey. Uh, so everyone has to go through it. But I think, of course, some of the observations, learnings and pitfalls that we have gone through that I can share. So, for example, one of them has been that I get this question quite very often that how did you get this idea of starting this AI lab. And I must really admit that it's not a dream that I or anyone at Husqvarna had one night and the next day morning we decided to do this. It is a journey. We started off with, you know, with putting a digital strategy in place, starting to execute upon it, create digital platform, collect data, uh, have open systems and have API-driven economy. And once we had that terabytes of data, the quality that we required, that was the next jump that, okay, let's now utilize data scientists and data engineering to derive insights, to predict future, to find anomalies, and so on and so on. So it is a journey that you have to take care of. But the most important recommendation there that I have is that there is no right time to start. The right time to start is now. If you don't have data, is not a showstopper. If you don't have a digital strategy, is not a showstopper. If you don't have a digital platform, it's not a showstopper. And actually, if you don't have the right competence, is not a showstopper either. It's just the approach. So start small, very, very minute, 1%, 2%, 50%, doesn't matter. The idea doesn't have to be the perfect. The data doesn't have to be the perfect. The use case doesn't have to be the perfect. You just have to get started. I think that's really important. When you go ahead, the second recommendation is the use case and the technology will not be so important as the approach would be. Are we taking iterative approach? Are we utilizing agile and scrum methodologies? Are we utilizing that, okay, failure is an option? but fail fast is what we need to do. Are we collaborating? We will not be good at everything ourselves. We will not be able to make the BERT models for NLP ourselves ever. We have to collaborate. We have to collaborate with startups. We have to collaborate with academia and bring in their best practices into us. You know, So that approach to this transformation, openness towards this transformation is going to be really important. And then of course, the last one would be don't just concentrate. Start, get started, start doing pilots, start doing POCs, small silos here and there, but don't get stopped or stalled by these POCs. Take them to the last step. Take them to your business. Take them to your customers because you can do POCs for two years and then will come the board. Where is my ROI? That will happen. It's just a matter of time. So. Don't just get boggled and be happy and satisfied with running pilots and POCs, but trying to industrialize it. And then, of course, one of the biggest factors which plays a role in industrializing is our democratization, citizen data scientists and so on. So those are the few factors. Start small, have the right approach, concentrate on POCs to start with, but very quickly also on go to market and keep making sure that you are democratizing it including not making this center of excellence a silos, but actually including your entire company into it slowly, gradually. I think that is probably that we have learned. 
Yeah. And I think starting small, is, as you say, is so important and it's not a silver bullet. You can't roll out AI use cases and expect ROI immediately. It's not like potentially other organizational strategies. This is a long term, mm. it's an iterative approach. So at Husqvarna, what is the typical life cycle of an AI project? How long does it take for you to gain value? What are the sort of milestones that you look for in every project? And we are actually quite stringent on that. None of the projects that we run in the lab are more than seven, maximum eight weeks. And when we say a project in the lab, we do not make PowerPoints. We make end-to-end prototypes. So in those eight weeks, you have to identify the business use case, the business problem, You have to identify the data sets which can give us insights into that business problem. They could be internal data sets or external. You have to procure them, put them into our big data platform, label them, train the models, come up with the final machine learning models or deep learning models, optimize them and deploy them onto a product or a service or a web or an app and give it to your customer everything end-to-end to be done within this seven, eight-week cycle. Of course, we can decide a small scope for it. That's not a problem. We will do only one model, very specific one, but it has to be end-to-end and I'm ready to run 10 such iterations. That's not a problem either. But something tangible needs to come out and needs to come out really quickly. I think that is the key. So, And when you do this, buy-in is very easy. You know, I don't have to go to my business stakeholder and say, I need 5 million for the next two years to do this. And then he will laugh and say, I can give it to anyone. Why do I give it to you? Anyone, if I give 5 million, they will do wonders for me. But now we go back saying, okay, I need just 200,000 sec, 150,000 sec. I just need six weeks. And if you see value, then you give me the next iteration. Otherwise, we don't do it. So that's why it's the iterative approach, this small POC is the key, at least for us. But then at the same time, I must also say is that that is the acceleration engine, the innovation engine. Of course, you need some sort of backend. You need a dedicated, you cannot get a a data scientist for six weeks and then let him go. Then again, get another data scientist for six weeks and then let him go. That is not going to really work. So there is some sort of investment required in that center of excellence where you can have dedicated people who can take project after project after project. And that, of course, one can argue that is an investment that one should take. And that's why you need the bigger buy-in from management, for example, to set up that center of excellence pool of talent, some sort of technology, some sort of tool set, some sort of architecture, and then go with that as a backbone to your business and help them quickly iterate upon within six to eight weeks on different innovation projects using data-driven approach. So you're looking for results at six to eight weeks, short-term pointed projects. What about the longer term then? I'm sure you also have a longer term strategic roadmap where Mm -hmm. things might not be achieved in 2021, maybe not even before 2025. Do you Mm -hmm. have a strategy like that as well that all of these smaller projects are leading into? Definitely. And I think that's where we have broken up the lab into what we called one area AI research and the other area is AI service development. So AI research is the one who is doing these quick iteration projects, six, eight weeks, 
and then one iteration shows me some value then oh perfect business likes it or business doesn't like it so then we scope out the next iteration the next iteration but after two three iterations four iterations when business says we can make something out of it that's when it goes into ai service delivery model wherein we help business to incorporate that or build that as a capability i think it's unfair on our front if we say that okay i have done this poc six weeks well i have the resources i decide the scope i have the budget and i decide how and when it is needs to be done and once it is done and i say oh it's a success now mr business please take it forward and make money out of it i think that's unfair to do a POC is one thing and to industrialize it is a totally different thing. So that's why to bridge the gap from a strategic project perspective till the point that it is not proven that strategic relevance, we keep iterating it in air. Many of them gets dropped on an average two out of 10 actually make it to our AI service delivery. Eight of them gets dropped. But then once it makes it to AI service delivery, that's we anchor. So those ideas are then anchored within the business. And when I say anchor, now that's very important here because now we are talking about transformation, meaning it's no more just an idea. It's, let's say, in Husqvarna, we have 22,000 dealers. Those dealers are mechanical engineers. They know how to configure a two-stroke, four-stroke piston. Now, if I ask them to configure my AI model, that's not going to work. So all of a sudden, I need a totally different aftermarket approach. My sales force is, knows how to sell products. And now we are going to sell AI models. They do not know how to sell this, how to create a value proposition about it. So that is what I mean by building capability. Once those ideas have been iterated upon from a data-driven service perspective, so we are not talking about products, we are not talking about services, we are selling data. We are just selling data insights. And to have sales for it, to have after sales for it, maintenance and support for it, those capabilities need to be built within the business. And that's what I call transformation, business model innovation. So we have to make sure that we are taking responsibility together with business to anchor it and build these capabilities for them rather than you know, coming as a center of excellence, doing a cool project and then say, no, it's your problem, make it work. Uh, I think that that is something that will not work, to be honest, is what we believe. Yeah. And you've mentioned it a couple of times already, this democratization of data. At Husqvarna, you have domain experts with decades of experience within their field. Increasingly now, we're telling them to be more data driven and that everybody needs to have a digital first mindset. What does the data science team look like at Husqvarna? Yeah, and that's a good question. And I think I get that as well quite a lot. How do we get this talent going? What kind of people do we need? What kind of competence do we need? And I wish I had a very good answer there. <laughs> to be honest, on one hand, we don't have those competence because it's a new transformation. If I need an SAP expert, I can get one. If I need an edge AI framework expert, there is nothing like that in the market today. And even if there are, we have to compete them or those people against Microsoft's and Google's of the world. So we will stand no chance anyhow. So I think the point here is that because it's a transformation, because it's a journey, we have to build that talent for ourselves going forward rather than chasing 
some pool of talent which exists somewhere and we will just get five people out of that pool and that will make it happen for us. I seriously doubt that. And that's why, as I said before, democratization comes up as a very big factor for us. We are technologists. Let's say a 10-member, 20-member team who are good at data science, who can do this technology for us. So there is no central pool of resources whom we can somewhere in the market whom we can go and target and get in, get them and they will transform for us. So we have to build that talent ourselves and we are a bunch of technologists. So if we have 20 people who are good at data-driven technologies, data science, machine learning, but we don't know our customers, we don't know their problems. It's our business who has been working with our customers for 20 years, for 25 years. So we have to anchor ourselves with them to identify what data sets, what problems can it be solved. So that's why what the model that we have worked upon is that since the resources are not there so much as we need, even if they are there, the competition is great to get them in. So that's why what we said was we will build this competence through democratization, through citizen data scientists ourselves. So we have now programs and there are many government-driven programs, our internal-driven programs. There are many user communities like uh, Combient from Wallenberry, VASP, Vinova-based programs that we have to build these competencies for ourselves, both in the area of data science and data engineering. But at a high level, I think what we have seen is, coming back to your question, what kind of competence are we talking about? There are a lot of new competencies. For example, of course, data scientists, data engineers, data stewards. We are looking into AI product managers. The way you product manage a traditional hardware product or a software product and the way you manage chatbots is totally different. Uh, the way you manage edge AI models, which are self-learning models, and if we roll out in 2 million products every year, and where they are self-learning and, self and taking controls while the products are being operated, to, have, to be a product manager of such a product line is totally different than to be a product manager for a chainsaw model X series or model Y series. So new roles are coming in in this entire transformation with respect to data is what we are seeing. And some we can source, but then for a long-term stability, and sustainability perspective, we have taken that, okay, we will be building these roles in-house ourselves. And one last thing also that we are actually looking into and just started to get into is the gig economy. I think that is also going to play a major role in our ambitions with resourcing in this area is what we believe. And how does the future look in terms of the, the split between the technologists that you mentioned who have a lot of experience within ML? and the more domain experts slash citizen data scientists. What's the split going to be in the future in terms of percentages? Well, it's difficult to predict. I think it's difficult. It, sorry, it depends from industry to industry, from the ambition. So for example, companies like Husqvarna, who as one of their strategic pillars say that they want to get into data-driven services and increase their top line with data-driven services, some of the companies might say that, okay, they want to use data-driven decision-making for their operational excellence. Some of the companies might say they want to have certain percentage of their top line using data-driven approaches. So it depends from the company's strategy that, okay, how much trust and how much main streamline backbone is going to be dependent on your 
these data-driven approaches. But on an average, I would say it is somewhere in the range of one is to five or one is to eight. So if you get one expert in this area, I think you should have an ambition that within business, you have about five to eight people who can anchor that together with him. And that is when you can really reap the benefits. If you have somewhere lesser than that, at least my personal opinion, again, as I said, it's give and take number, depends from industry, depends on use cases and so on. But then you are underutilizing them or overpaying the center of excellence to what they are doing. That is just my opinion. But as I said, you have to take the number with a pinch of salt there. And so for people listening to this, Girish, that are thinking, wow, what an opportunity I have to become a citizen data scientist. I've always thought data science was a different universe to the one that I live in. So for these people that now see this possibility, how would you recommend that they can upskill and really become a leading citizen data scientist in their organization? You know, there my answer would be technology keeps on changing. Trust me, if you know Python today, in five years, it will not exist, or at least the usage will be drastically down. So it's not about technology. It's not about skill. It's about your approach. It's about your mindset. If you are ready to learn, if you are ready to adapt as you go along, you know, just to give you a small example, if in 1992, if you had to build a corporate website, what did we do? I remember building one for one of those companies back then. What we did was we got some technical writers, some content developers. uh, We got a web developer and a web architect and the business guys and locked them in a room or whatever in a project for six weeks. And there came 25 pages of your corporate website. That's exactly what we are doing today with data science. Today, if you have to make a corporate website, what do you do? Maybe three clicks, maximum five clicks, and it's out there. Today, what we are doing with data science is, okay, you have a use case, get a data scientist, get a bunch of data engineers, get a domain expert, get the in, you know some COE guy and put them in a room. And as I said, six to eight weeks, give them something, they will come up with a clever model who will predict something. Do we really think this is the, how it will be in 20 years from now? Now, one can argue if it is 20 or 40 or five years, but that's not how the future would be. It will evolve. Technology will evolve. There is no question about it. Let's not fool ourselves. So I think if you really want to be that citizen data scientist, technology and so on is going to be the least of a factor. It is your approach or your mindset. Are you ready to take up challenges? Are you ready to take up the new things? Are you ready to learn and bring them, bring those things, the leadership aspects and so on? And then, of course, you have to be supported by the upskilling. And that support for upskilling can be brought in by the center of excellence teams who make these democratization programs. There are a lot of democratization programs from government, as I said, elements of AI, for example, Swedish Rice is running quite a lot of programs there. So there what you have to do is, and there are a lot of startups like Pythorian and so on who have come up with deep learning platforms trying to democratize. So there are various ways of getting in there and starting to learn. But what you have to learn is having the approach of learning and changing and then slowly, gradually knowing your business. That's the core part. Knowing your business, knowing your customers, knowing what data sets, what problems, use cases are important. And then identifying that how and what aspects of technology can help you. 
do you need better labeling? Do you need better data sets? Do you need heuristic algorithms? Do you need Bayesian algorithms? Do you need deep learning algorithms? How can I leave the algorithms to the tools and just concentrate on the output? How can we configure those parameters to actually make them even better? How do I now have a good model? How do I integrate it into my business model so that I can get benefits to my customers so that I can capture the value and so on and so on. So I think there are many ways uh, center of excellences can work and that's basically the kind of work that these AI labs and center of excellence try to do. Giving the ways, the means, the approach, the mindset and the tools and technologies that should go within the organizational units. For example, I sometimes say, if I have to run this AI lab two or three years from now, then probably we have failed. Because this is like having a web development unit since 1991, which exists even till today. It has dissipated. It's a normal capability that everyone is aware of. And that's what at least my vision is that it should, the data science and the insights of data-driven technologies should be embedded in the business all over. Almost to seep in like water is a phrase exactly. I heard recently. Exactly. Talk, talk to me about the gig economy and, and how that's relevant, Girish. That, that's a new one for me. We have been noticing it for quite some time. And, and the thing is, there are two parts of data science. Uh, one is the generic algorithms that we all are exposed to, the BERT models and you know PMI models and vision systems and so on and so on. And that are pre-trained models that we use and we recursively use it. Either we parse it or we you know, down, down the parameters or we retrain it or we reinforce learn it and take it forward for our use cases, which are generic ones for natural language processing or chatbots or natural language generation and so on. But on the other hand, when you have some very specific requirements, Let's say I want to build an edge model for safety purposes for my chainsaw, or I want to build a machine learned deep learning model, which I will deploy on a robotic mover walking on grass and identifying what quality of grass it is walking on so that it can adjust the blade speed and configurations of how much does it need to cut and so on and so on. For those very, very specific areas, it is so difficult to identify and get the right competence. Sometimes the project will take six to eight weeks, but it takes eight months to get the right person to actually do it. And that's why we said, how do we accelerate our ambition into those specific use cases, which will be our USP in a long run? Of course, that might not be bread and butter, but that's going to be the USP in a long run. And with Corona seeping in and with you know this talent acquisition be- becoming more and more a problem, We tried to come up with, because as I said, the center of excellence provides the tools, the processes, the required application, and the ways of working, not only for the entire organization, but also how to integrate with this gig economy, wherein you all of a sudden have access to these 55 million developers in the whole world who are ready. And of course, if you try to find out not every 55 million is, is aware of each and every technology, but to boil down to your technology of what is more in, most interesting for you and collaborate with them to come up with the best solution without having to be hiring them, without having the condition for their locational preferences and without having all the contractual and HR and finance obligations that you have to get in. If we can still give them 
with the required GDPR, with the required compliance, the access to data, the access to our project, get their competence onboarded and deliver it within six to eight weeks, as I always say. That is the kind of the model that we are trying to integrate with gig economy to get the required specific talent that we are after. The generic ones, of course, are available at mass. And we have been quite successful in a few specific technology areas, which are still, I would say, a bit of a niche. And there, sometimes it's not only the developer, sometimes it's the R&D community. It's the research community, which seeps in because they find the challenge much more interesting, where we are also reaping benefits. Girish, I'm sure we have a lot of people watching this that are thinking AI would be easy if we could just clone Girish and, and, and have him <laughs> set up the center of excellence in, in all of our organizations. Of course, as far as I know, that's impossible for now. But how would you recommend other companies search for a leader to head up these AI organizations? And what mm. skills do they need, really? Because this is a complex thing. This is a long-term thing. Leadership is as important as the data democratization aspect, in my opinion. So what's your thoughts on that? No, that's true. Uh, I think uh, leadership is the one who would make or break this acceleration, uh, to be honest. As I said, technology is important, but that's the smallest part. Uh, if you get into a data science project, you will realize that the data science, which is building the model, is maybe 15% of the entire end-to-end -end project. So we have overdone this data scientists and citizen scientists. You know, that's just one small part of the whole puzzle, to be honest. Of course, it's important. Uh, it's like the heart is very important. But if you have only the heart, it doesn't help either. But come, so leadership is definitely going to be a major, major, I would say, boost or enabler in this journey. But I think we have already touched upon a few aspects, which I at least personally think are really important. Those leaders have to lead gig economy. They have to lead millennials. They are not driven by you know, traditional motivations that we are aware of. Uh, we in, in our lab have double PhDs, triple masters. To lead such people is a totally different ballgame. To lead a data scientist is a totally different ballgame than to lead a sales guy who can be driven by you know, top line or bottom line or bonuses and so on. So you know, there are different approaches to how do you take them on board, how do you keep them motivated, how do you extract the maximum out of them, and so on and so on. And I think for that, the vision, the need for collaboration, the buy-in from management, it's not about prestige, it's not about the rank, it's about the best idea. And it's about challenging the status quo. Uh, do not take in the processes. For example, I remember when we started the lab a couple of years ago, uh, there was a startup in Stockholm. Uh, I will, of course, not name the company, but you know, we, we were very close that, okay, we came up with an idea. I said, it's a very interesting technology. Again, six to eight weeks. Let's just get this project going. Let's see how far we go. And then we'll take the next iteration. So I think it was Thursday or Friday. And then I said, okay, please talk to my sourcing, get this all going, and let's start next week. And then I get a call from this people, two people company on Tuesday that, Girish, this is not happening. I don't think we will be able to proceed. I said, what happened? Last week was all good. And now you're saying it cannot happen. What happened? So he said, no, we, your sourcing department has sent us uh, an NDA that we need to sign. It's a 78-page document and it's written in English is what they say, but I don't understand anything uh, what it says. So a 78-page NDA to run a six-week project, that's not going to happen. So as a leader, you have to challenge them. 
my finance came back and saying, okay, give me a statement of work. What is going to come out of this six weeks? I need, because we are paying them. So what is the output? Are we going to own all the deliveries out of it? What is the outcome which is going? And I said, I do not know how the training will go. Maybe the training will give me 5% accuracy. Maybe it will give me 95% accuracy. I do not know. But no, we need a statement of work, a prescribed specification that this is the output for which we will pay. So those traditional ways of finance, traditional ways of sourcing people, now gig economy has come in, uh, traditional ways of legal compliance, they were not working for us. So I think to lead such a transformation, you really need leaders who are challenging the status quo, who has the mindset and approach for failing, who can stand up in front of management to owe up to the failures, because for me, the definition of failure is really changed. As far as we are learning, we are not failing. So if you have to get that two ideas out of the bucket, then the other eight has to be dropped. And those dropping are our learnings and not failures. So that's why, you know, having the approach, challenging, collaboration, which I spoke about, you cannot do everything by yourself. You will never be able to. You have to collaborate so that you can build upon each other. And no prestige thing is just about the best idea. So you really need to get those people who understand the technology, maybe are not the best at it, but who can lead this different set of people that we are talking about, which are driven by very many different things, as well as who are ready to be part of this journey where prestige will not be important, collaboration will be, and you know you will be, so to say, failing or letting go away a lot of ideas rather than adopting them. Yeah. So I think we're talking a lot about the cultural shift that needs to happen in an organization. I don't think we can have a whole conversation about AI Giddish without speaking about Gartner and, and all of their many wonderful white papers. Mm. Uh, last year, they released their hype cycle. They spoke about two megatrends, democratization and industrialization. Do you agree that these are the two megatrends? Do you think there's something more important? What's your thoughts on that? No, I agree. I saw that report as well. And I think uh, we have touched upon both of them in our conversation so far as well in some way. That And the reason why we say that to be a megatrend is because these units, these innovation units, center of excellences and labs and so on were becoming silos. They were not getting into the mainstream. And one of the reasons for uh, one of the ways how we can make it mainstream is through democratization. That means everyone starts to do this rather than only the central team doing this. And the other is, how can we make it our main business? It's not a POC. It's not just a pilot. It's our earning machine. It's giving me the ROI. So I can agree to them that you know it is the mix of democratization and industrialization, which will then increase the adoption of data-driven and AI, and hence accelerate the transformation of these companies towards the uh, business model innovation that digital is driving. So I can agree to work on that. Yeah. And then speak to me about, of course, they released that in 2020. We're in a very different world now. You know, a lot has mm -hmm. changed over the past year. How has COVID affected this roadmap for you? Research says that I think the majority, 47% of investments have maintained in AI. 30% of companies have increased their investments in AI. Has this filtered into yourselves at Husqvarna? 
no, I think, of course, COVID has taught us a lot of things. Luckily or unluckily for Husqvarna, it has worked out quite well, actually, to be honest. But if you take a step back and see all these advancements, even let's say in COVID test and COVID maturity, for example, uh, how fast were we able to test validate the vaccine? How fast were we able to roll it out? There is a tremendous role that data and AI has played in that also, for example. So it's not only how the external factors or the impactors from COVID who are benefiting from data, but it's actually the pandemic itself which has benefited and accelerated the data usage and the technology usage. You know, another example that I can say from an impactor perspective is we don't meet our customers anymore. And hence, we are using these technologies like digital to understand through our product connectivity, through our chatbots, through our services, online channels, to collect more data about our customers. We meet them less, but to be honest, we know them much more deeper now because those physical touch points were taken away, digital touch points were put into the picture, and those are giving us much deep insights about our customers than what we were getting from the physical interfaces uh, before, for example. So I think that pandemic has really taught us on new approaches to understand our customers, new approaches, data-driven insight running businesses, and to identify new products and solutions that we should look into, and new avenues of generating customer delights. Uh, which I think end of the day is the one which uh, drives value. Uh, until and unless the technology gives that customer delight, it will not help. So I think pandemic has really taught us or, or taken us at least a decade faster towards this digital journey is, is what my anticipation would be. And then one can say the digital is about online channels and uh, doing meetings online and so on. Or one can also say, the amount of data-driven research that we have done for the pandemic, for the virus itself and the vaccine itself, and also what some industries and some partners who have looked into finding or understanding our customers and products better because the physical interface is gone. So really increasing. So I think the numbers haven't come out yet, but I think the 2020 numbers for data generation will be humongously high as compared to, of course, we have always been in a trajectory of exponential growth, but I have a feeling and in 2020 that exponential growth would have actually increased quite many folds also. And one of the reasons is because we were not able to have the proximity, we increased our proximity with the customers using digital data. So I see all the benefits, <laughs> to be honest, coming out from this pandemic, specifically in the digital area. Of course, there are many other learnings and, and improvements that we should take back from society's perspective. But at least from a digital side, I think we are a decade faster now. Yeah. As you say, I think we can take a lot of positives. I think this whole conversation has been very exciting, very enthusiastic. If people ask me, Sean, do you want the good news or the bad news first? I always say, give me the good news first. So I think we've, we've definitely done that, Girish. But talk to me briefly about the bad news, maybe. There are not so much doubters out there, but more worriers that with escalating AI throughout the company, there are going to be more challenges with that. And can you talk to us a bit about some of those challenges and how to alleviate them? 
No, definitely. I think there are a lot of challenges starting from the company and then going out into the society and the regulators and so on. If I can do that from company standpoint, I think if you have been tracking all these gardeners and foresters and McKinsey's, they have all said, the, you know, it will different uh, companies have different numbers. But I think they have been saying that AI delivering somewhere in between 20 to 30 trillion dollars uh, into the economy pumping and so on and so on. And then if you in the next five years, seven years, and if you take what it is doing today, if you just take a CAGR, it's almost about 30, 35 percent of CAGR year on year. And to be very honest, and that's why my research of how do we transform technology into value through business models and other ways. To give a CAGR of 35% means that we shouldn't be doing POCs. We should be earning money out of this now. Enough time of doing POCs and pilots. And if you really go out to companies today, and if I ask this, let's ask ourselves, being the hard ones, ourselves, how much top line is data creating for us today? How much bottom line? And if you leave some handful technology companies out, Amazons, Microsofts, Googles, and Apples of the world, there are actually not many who are generating double-digit top lines from data-driven. And if they're not even doing double-digit from their data-driven and AI and insights, how can I give you 35% CAGR consistently for 12 years? It doesn't go hand in hand. So I think it's just a matter of time when probably this will start bursting out. When so much of investment from venture capitalists, from governments, from authorities, you know, central union governments and so on have gone into this, that that will start questioning. Where is the value? Where is the output? Where is the ROI at a board level that will start to come in? And that's why I think on one hand, yes, we have to be patient and perseverance take small ideas, take small steps. And that's why my emphasis on approach, do not try to churn the ocean, take small steps, show the value, start earning something, and then use that to fuel the next one. So I think that is going to be one challenge that sometimes we just say, create a COE, throw in 10 million, and wonders will happen. No, it will not. Uh, after throwing this, you have to give it some time to get anchored in the business, the perseverance, the patience has to be done. And I see a challenge that this continuous investment that has gone for a very long time might actually come down a little going forward if we are not concentrating on the actual delivery of the top line and the bottom line using AI and still concentrating only on the POCs, so to say. So that's one challenge from a company perspective. From a bit more industry perspective, I think we are still working in a lot of silos my data, Husqvarna data is my data. I want to protect it. I don't want to share. And the technology is such in data driven that the more data, the more quality, the more insights, the more value. So I am seeing that, you know, there are some challenges that we have in within the industry and cross industry data forums, data marts, data consortiums, data frameworks, which are really lacking, which I think will be coming up, which we really need to work towards. Uh, which will then enhance the ability of these models, of these AI technologies that I think today is quite limited. And that's why we are talking about narrow AI. Uh, we are not talking about general AI. And to get to from narrow to general, these data consortiums within the industries and so on will be really important. And then the third challenge that I can touch upon is more from a society, more from a regulator's perspective, is that I think we are way, 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 
to uh, slow when it comes to regulations within this area, to be honest. The technology is moving way too fast and we are not able to regulate it. I think it's like putting those cars on the highway without any routes. Uh, No speed limits, no lanes, uh, no left and right hand driving, uh, nothing at all. And that's what is happening to technology today. So we are, I think we have to increase from an industry standpoint that how do we collaborate with the regulators? For example, if I start launching my edge AI models on the chainsaw, which is not only self-learning, taking decision on the control system on the chainsaw itself, it can be dangerous. It can start killing people, for example. So technology is not a problem here. For example, if you want an autonomous car, well, the technology has been there since five years to run the car autonomously, but the infrastructure is not ready. People are not ready. Rules, regulations is not ready. Society is not ready. Those things are really important now for the adoption of the technology. Unfortunate, but that's how it works. The technology itself is not important. Are, is the society ready to adopt that technology? Do we have those rules, regulations or not? So I think that's another challenge which we really have to address uh, for better adoption of this. And are you concerned, Girish, that by addressing some of those regulatory challenges, that it might go the other way and might start to actually stifle innovation and be too strict? Is that a concern? To be honest, not personally, me being a technologist, Every technology has a positive side and a negative side. We made nuclear. You know, I think today we have no issues of electricity generation, but on the other hand, we have nuclear bombs. We made the screens, LCDs. Uh, On one hand, uh, we are getting more thicker and thicker specs, but on the other hand, our generation is the most learned one and most aware one. So every technology will have its pros and cons. So, for example, as I always say, cars, they have gone better and better. The rules have gone stricter and stricter to get your license. But has it stopped the car evolution or the betterment of the car? Probably not. But of course, one can argue that maybe if the rules were not there, we might have made a flying car today. Yeah, maybe. But I think uh, as a society, we have to grow and learn within certain domains. If we do not have those rules, set rules, it will be a wild west, to be honest. That's why sometimes it's important that to grow society at large, you have to have some some sort of regulations around. And then one can always argue if the regulation should be ideology-based or should be methodology-based. If the regulations are ideology-based, then they do not limit you from technology innovation. But if the regulations are methodology-based, that you are not allowed to do this and you are allowed to do that, then yes, it can hamper innovation. It can hamper technology growth. So I think if we are more on the ideology-based, then I don't see any concerns that uh, we will hamper technology growth, to be honest, by regulation. Girish, I think we could talk for hours here. <laughs> for sure. I, you are touching upon some subjects which are really close to my heart. <laughs> <laughs> I fear, though, maybe we both have to go to more meetings. So no. just to conclude, Girish, and thank you so much for joining. Any final words of wisdom for our listeners? Uh, that's the most difficult uh, question, Sean, to be honest. Uh, I don't see myself to be an expert by any which ways or means. Uh, I'm learning every single day uh, in my research, in industry, talking to these 
excellent engineers and people out there who are doing this research on a daily basis and so on. So I still do not believe that I really have words of wisdom still in the area, to be very honest. But yes, I have some recommendations that I can say, and which I think I've touched upon earlier, that I am a strong believer of getting out there and getting started, not waiting and not finding excuses. I don't have the data. I don't have the competence. I don't have the budget. I don't have the resource. I don't have the mandate. All of those are just reasons. I think we can just get started. I don't need a COE. I don't need, if I want to do that within my department, I can just start doing it right here and now. Start capturing the data small and, and you will find resources. As I said, you don't have to pay. There's so much of investments that has gone into this area. So my only thing is get started. There is no right time and there is no wrong time. Just get started and have an open mindset. Keep learning, keep adopting as you go along and do it at your level. And those small silos at you know all over the organization, all over the industry is what will actually make a bigger impact. So just get started and do not get stuck with technology. Concentrate on the value, on the customer value, on the new business model that it can implicate. So if you get started, keep that in focus, you will figure out ways, you will figure out technology, you will figure out resources and ways to proceed. I want to really advocate that because the more, the merrier. The idea here is not to make Husqvarna win. The idea here is to make this technology win and then Husqvarna will win any which ways. So I really want that this technology should get adopted, embedded within the industry, and then we all will benefit from it. There you go. Well, you've heard it, all of the audience out there. Just get started. Keep the customer value at the front. Thank you so much, Girish. A real pleasure speaking to you and all of the best with your future endeavors. Thank you, Sean. It was a pleasure talking. Thanks for tuning in. For more Future Says content and to watch all episodes on demand, visit alter.com forward slash Future Says. We'll see you again next time. <laughs>